You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, it's another week that just doesn't fit neatly into the co-main event podcast three-round format. We noted on Friday during the Power Hour that ain't really shit going on leading into the weekend. You had, you know, not a terrible UFC card on Saturday night from down there at the Apex in Las Vegas, but at the same time, not necessarily one that gives us a ton of uh, fodder for discussion, especially leading into a... uh, an event this weekend that has already lost its its main event with uh, Islam Makachev pulling out of his fight with Rafael Dos Anjos. And so as it seems like we are frequently these days, we're left to scramble a little bit, to break away from our normal format, to do something a little bit different. Hopefully the kids will think it is, is fun, but here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to spend the first half of this show with some listener mail, doing some odds and ends from this uh, UFC event over the weekend. And then the second half of the show, uh, you and I are going to discuss the light heavyweight division, uh, including Glover Teixeira's win over Tiago Santos from Saturday and, uh, you know, some some other speculation, future future prospects, things like that, 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 uh, that could help define this division which struggles to find its feet now after after John Jones has apparently vacated for the heavyweight class. So we're going to do five questions about the light heavyweight division. Two of those questions, by the way, come from listener mail. So the people are going to get ample opportunity to weigh in uh, this week. I assume, having not checked in with you about it, that you are very excited about these these plans. Chad, you know that I am all for the people's voices being heard. I know that about you. You are a populist, a man of the people. Yes. I feel that whenever possible, I like to incite a mob. I like to, you know, do a little bit of rabble rousing. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we're going to make our name off the unfettered discourse, it seems only fair that we should unfetter the audience as well. No, that's true. I know uh, you want to be out there with your hands in the dirt talking to the regular folk, building houses for Habitat for Humanity like no, Jimmy not, Goddamn I'm, Carter. I'm not actually building anything. I'm not, I'm not doing anything to actually help anybody. Let's, let's be clear. I draw a line in the sand right there at anything that might be helpful to anybody. But as long as we're just saying stuff, I'm all for our listeners just saying stuff with us. No, I, and I'm sure that they appreciate that about you as much as I do. If you haven't already... Kids, go out and grab a copy of The Blaze, my latest novel. It's a mystery and thriller. I've been hearing from a lot of the little co-maniacs out there that they think it's pretty good. Run out, grab a copy of The Blaze today on whatever format you like to do your reading. Remember, if you have read it or you do read it and you enjoy it, please go ahead and leave me a five-star review over at Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you like. Those reviews really do help the book, so do me a favor. Buy, read, rate, and review The Blaze wherever is best for you. Uh, it's an exciting time, as it always is over on the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon page, Ben. But this week, 
something that I know near and dear to both of our hearts as part of the famous film director retrospective, which we do for the $10 patrons over there at uh, patreon.com slash co-main event. We're going to be watching First Blood, the original Rambo movie, and discussing that for Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, and that is, that, that's going to be a slow ball right down the middle in the wheelhouse of you and me. You know, Chad, you should have let it go. You just kept pushing. Yeah. You just kept pushing. You just wanted to get a 57 Chevy and drive it till the wheels fall off. But uh, life had other plans. I mean, I'm, I'm amped to say the least, because any time to talk about how Rambo First Blood is actually about the hero's journey, the hero's quest. Yeah. I mean, what's not to love? going to be doing that of course we'll have the wednesday mma live chat like we always do over at the patreon page and then friday the power hour again uh we got music this week probably do a little music in the middle of the show from our guy simio aka co-main event podcast listener alfred larson if you like what you hear from him on the show you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash simio that's s-e-e-m-i-o simio uh, let's dispense with the formalities, Ben. Let's get down to it like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Burley H over on the Patreon page, one of the okay. beloved patrons of the Co-Main Event Podcast. He says, I'm writing to say one thing only. Put some goddamn respect on the name of the heavyweight division. Wow. The common complaint with the heavyweight division is that it has no exciting young talent and is full of dinosaurs. This weekend, we saw one of those quote-unquote dinosaurs, Andre Arlovsky, beat a promising young guy in Tanner Bozer. Although not the most exciting fight, I thought Arlovsky looked great, and neither fighter falls into the lumbering heavyweight cliché. If you look at the quote-unquote dinosaurs of the heavyweight division, they're still all competitive and compelling to watch. Overeem and JDS are still holding on to their own. At the top level, Olenek is a magical weirdsmobile, and Arlovsky and Rothwell have settled into gatekeeper roles uh, for the top 15. On top of this, you had four exciting young heavyweights enter the rankings last year. Jarzino Rosenstrike, Augusto Sakai, Sergei Pavlovich, and Cyril Gaon all of whom have the skills to be mainstays in the top 10. Furthermore, outside of the top 15, there are a load of young fighters in their 20s with Promise, Bozer, Aspinall, Tuivasa, Dukakis, uh, Romanov, Tafa, Felipe, Nascimento, and Spivak. Please discuss your thoughts on whether we need to update our image of the heavyweight division and what you thought of the what you think of the fun young prospects on the come up. Now, I got to be honest with you, folks. I did not think rolling out of Andre Arlovsky versus Tanner Bozer that we would be getting uh, some emails in praise of the heavyweight division. But here we are now. Before we before we talk about this question and before we talk about Bozer versus Arlovsky. Uh, I do want to check in with you. How you doing? How's your mental state? I know you're a big bulldozer, bozer, booster. Uh, this had to be a tough one for you, seeing the yeah. kid drop 29-28s across the board to the old man, Andre Arlovsky, on Saturday night. Yeah, that was rough. I'm not going to lie to you. It was difficult. Uh, by the way, we have settled on a name here on the Tanner Bozer bandwagon. We are the Bozer Hosers. The Bozer Hosers. Okay. Yeah, just so I you mean, know. I like that. It rhymes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, He lost and that was not a great fight. You know, uh, Burley H is being really generous by saying, although not the most exciting fight, that fight kind of sucked. Yeah. And I kind of get it because Arlovsky 
He's an old dog with some some tricks in the old toolbox. You got to be careful with that guy. And it just seemed like Tanner Bozer was trying to work his usual thing of like starting slow, chipping away at the guy maybe, and then looking for an opening later on. And that opening just didn't materialize against an experienced guy like Arlovsky. And he didn't want to risk getting knocked out. And so what we saw was like just a, like barely above a stalemate at a lot of times in this fight. So yeah, not great. Although I would say Tanner Bozer, 29 years old, which in the heavyweight division is a damn toddler. Right. So, babe. yeah, he's got time. Maybe he'll learn from this. Maybe he'll come back better from it. I, I'm not giving up on Tanner Bozer and the rest of the Bozer hosers just yet. Um, I get kind of what we're saying here about the heavyweight division. I also think the heavyweight division benefits sometimes from our altered expectations for it. We don't expect to see the kind of high-level athleticism and nonstop motors that we expect and regularly get from just about everybody at like lightweight, featherweight around there. Heavyweights, we want you to come out there, bang it up a little bit, give us a show, and we'd really rather end it in a round, a round and a half. Yeah, We don't really want to get into third-round heavyweight MMA that much. And so it, we just look at it a little different. I mean, the... There are some interesting names here mentioned. I agree with that. I also think, though, that in the UFC, at least, the heavyweight division has suffered a little bit from how slowly things move in the title picture and how you had the trilogy between Daniel Cormier and Stipe Miocic. And a lot of that took took some time for us to get all that stuff on the books, Chad. Yes. And now we're, we're waiting around for what seems like Stipe and Nganu, and that's going to take some time for us to get anything on the books there. And so in the meantime, in these long stretches between heavyweight title fights, everybody else who's fighting in the heavyweight division right now is just kind of fighting to not fall too far back in line. Nobody can really say, hey, if I win this one, or even if I win this one and the next one, that I will be a number one contender. And I think that hurts the the division's ability to like advance a narrative and advance a, a cohesive line of thought, like a, a progression forward. Yeah. Um, I guess the bad news is that the other kind of heavyweight fight broke out this weekend between Andre Arlovsky and Tanner Bozer. If you're looking for the good news for the Bozer hosers, the bulldozer Bozer, Bozer bandwagon boosters, uh, it's not like he got totally trucked. You're not going right. to come out of this smelling like a rose because it wasn't a great fight. Anytime you got both Dom Cruz and uh, Smile and Trevor Whitman on the uh, call, basically being like, I think we need some more action here. It's probably not a great sign. But at the same time, this was essentially a heavyweight fight decided by like three hard punches over the course of 15 minutes. Like, uh, if you gave that first round to Andre Arlovsky, basically you did so on the, on the, basis of one hard punch in the last five seconds of the round. And so like, it's not like Tanner Bozer came out of this thing looking terrible. Like he got trucked and, and we're going to think differently about him as a prospect. He seems like a, uh, a good young up and coming heavyweight. And I agree with Burley H that there are a handful of those out there in the 265 pound division right now. It's just that, you know, you got into kind of, I don't want to say chess match. Cause I don't necessarily know that that's accurate, but like a staring contest, you got into a staring contest with Andre Arlovsky. And the judges counted his punts just to the dome more than they counted your leg kicks. And that's that's how the cookie crumbled uh, for the Canadian. So it's not altogether terrible news for Tanner Bozer, although I would not say altogether great news either for the heavyweight division. But look, man, 
I'm going to take any opportunity to try to look on the bright side for the big fellows in MMA because God knows we have to. And this list provided here by Burley H. I'm going to say, yeah, man, gives me a, a like a, a a glimmer of optimism. Let's say just a just a glimmer of optimism about Although, the heavyweight division. I will add Burley H. Among these list of names that he includes, uh, young fighters in their 20s with promise is Tai Tuivasa, who, if I'm not mistaken, was cut by the UFC earlier this year. And then when they realized, man, we're, we're hurting for bodies, uh, went and got him back right away. And he comes back in there, fights Stefan Struve, knocks him out, jumps on the cage, accidentally kicks Struve in the head while he's down. That's kind of emblematic of where we are at heavyweight. Yeah. I'm just, like thinking, okay, normal times, the UFC math is telling us, cut this guy from the roster. And then you look around after you do that and go, wait a minute, actually, Actually, maybe we're not in that kind of a position. And turns out he can come back, throw those hammers, and still knock somebody out. Next question this week comes to us from Devin Scott, who writes, The 2019 PFL lightweight tournament winner Kayla Harrison has got the green light to Invicta to fight 4-1 Courtney King at featherweight. Is this a test to see if she can make the weight before the UFC signs her? Is the PFL really giving really giving up on one of their key fighters? Lastly, let's speculate how Kayla Harrison pairs up against Amanda Nunez. Now, Ben, uh, this uh, press release just landed in my inbox this morning. So this is actually interesting news uh, on the women's side of things over there in MMA, not only because Kayla Harrison is going to get to fight while the PFL is on hiatus due to COVID-19, this year, but also because she's fighting at 145 pounds here, one of the actual women's divisions that the major organizations traffic in. Previous to this, she'd been up at 155. I don't know, man. If Kayla Harrison can reliably make 145 pounds, that's a very interesting development as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And if she can reliably make it and look good at that weight class and not leave her best stuff in the sauna. You know, that's that's also a big question from PFL's perspective. It seems uh, not so much to me like they're giving up on Kayla Harrison, but that they're trying to avoid a, a contractual problem with Kayla Harrison. We've seen this already with the PFL is running into an issue with some of its fighters where it hasn't held an event in so long. You're going to get into a breach of contract situation with some of these people if you can't offer them a fight. And so giving them permission to go fight elsewhere somewhere where they actually are holding fights might be one way around that. But it does seem to swing open some doors of possibility here, does it not? Yeah. yeah, I mean, if Kayla Harrison can make 145, if she looks good at that weight, and if she's going to go over there and fight in Invicta, which essentially is the sister organization of the Ultimate Fighting Championship, uh, right now I'm picturing PFL clutching a bunch of sand between its in its fingers, and the grains are just running out. It's the uh, it's the Star Star Wars analogy of the more star systems will slip through your fingers, the tighter you grasp. The tighter PFL grips on to Kayla Harrison, the more I start to feel like the writing is on the wall here, like she's going to be taking her talents to Las Vegas uh, relatively soon. I feel like a nerd alert just went off with that Star Wars reference, but okay. Yeah, heaven forbid there's any nerds up here on this podcast. <laughs> What's next? Next question this week comes to us from Daniel Anderson. He writes, hey guys, good to see you back. Did did we were we gone for a while? Was there a we do like we, three shows a damn week? Yeah, I'm trying to figure out where we've been this this whole time. Wait, did, do you think did we both fall into a fugue state? 
I mean, that could be simultaneously. A lot of people would say that would be better than the last four years. Uh, but we've been here week in, week out, like putting on the show, uh, you know, family, health and travel concerns willing. And the last year here we've been like really not going anywhere at all besides here to talk into these microphones. I always knew that one of these days we were going to fall into a double fugue state, simultaneous fugues. I've been saying it. How about this Islam guy, remarks Daniel Anderson. UFC makes such a big deal of this guy. Ali goes on and on about this guy. He barely ever fights. Finally makes a fight and then pulls out five days from the fight. Give me a break. That guy needs to do something else, and UFC needs to move on from that guy. Thoughts? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. A lot of question Uh, marks. So Islam Makachev is out of this pretty highly anticipated lightweight matchup with, with Rafael Dos Anjos. Uh owing to an injury, right? Undisclosed injury. Undisclosed injury. Uh, oh, wait. On November 8th, it was reported that Makachev was forced to pull out due to a staph infection. Oh, okay. Well, so not a whole lot you can do about that one. Yeah. Now, I don't know. Do you have you have you come to think of Islam Makachev as a guy who pulls out of a lot of fights? I don't I don't maybe I just haven't been paying close enough attention, but that's not necessarily uh, how I how I view the guy. I haven't come to think about him a whole lot at all just okay. yet. This was <laughs> going to be one of those fights where it was like, okay, if you win this one and you look really good doing it, then maybe you start to move into the the capital G Kai guy conversation in the division. But it's hard to do that when you're unable to show up for the fight. I mean, I'm we talk often on this show about how the one of the unwritten rules of MMA is if you're hurt, don't fight. And if you fight, don't bitch that you were hurt, you know? And so we need to be willing to give people a little leeway on when they do the the thing we're asking them to do on either side. If they do the thing where they're like, okay, I mean, a staph infection is a different kind of thing because a lot, that's sometimes it's like if your ribs hurt and you're like, I don't know, do I tell somebody my ribs hurt or I try to push through it? That's kind of a personal decision. If you've got a giant ass staph infection on your arm that everybody's going to see and that you know, is an active ongoing infection that you're going to have to battle with antibiotics and you can't get in there and fight, then that's often out of your hands. But in general, I'm, I don't like us criticizing people too much by being like, Oh, this guy keeps pulling out of fights. He never like, cause if we ask them to, to not make excuses after fighting hurt, then we need to be a little understanding if they're saying I'm too hurt to fight here. Yeah. Uh, but it, it does. I tell you what it does do is this fight card was already a little bit in some weak sauce territory, just in terms of name value up and down the thing. You take away this, and if you can't come up with a really short notice replacement, which especially these days is going to be really tough, uh, somebody to put in there against Javier Dos Anjos, what do you do, man? Because right now I'm looking at it. I'm just looking at the card on Wikipedia, and the main card now looks like uh, Abdul Razak Al-Hassan versus Chaos Williams, Julian Marquez versus Saperbek Safarov, uh, Eric, your boy, Anders, your boy, Eric, your boy, Anders against Antonio Arroyo. And that's kind of it. Like that's a card where there is no main event. There's just a fight that goes last. Yeah. And that, that hurts. Like a lot of these fight cards that we're seeing in the last couple months of 2020 do not have the kind of name brand firepower where they can afford a, a main event withdrawal on short notice. Yeah, no, I agree. This is going to be uh, this is going to be some spare parts here if we don't get something figured out in a hurry. Although you got to assume 
the UFC probably just going to go ahead and have this event anyway yeah. in the interest of in the interest of putting the content out there on ESPN Plus and making sure they get their 42 events in this year uh, to make the money, the broadcast money, the licensing money from from ESPN. I was just doing a quick quick look here at Islam Makhachev's uh, recent appearances. He hasn't fought since September of 2019, so it's been a while. Uh, for him, but he has, he did fight twice a year, both in 2019 and 2018. Then uh, maybe some injury stuff happening back there. But I would also point out another fighter who at one time had a reputation for pulling out of a lot of fights and not making it to the cage enough. And that would be a fellow by the name of Habib Nurmagomedov, yeah. who uh, just wrapped up apparently his career a couple weeks ago on a pretty good note. So uh, maybe feel like it turned out okay for him. Turned out okay yeah. for Habib. Maybe, okay. maybe we shouldn't pull the rug quite out from under of Islam Makachev as of yet. Yeah. Okay. This reminds me, though, talking about like the quality of some of these cards coming up. Did you see the brief Twitter debate about whether all cards matter? Did you see this? Uh, I believe it was Bloody Elbow Reiner, Zane Simon, kind of look. I don't know if he was looking ahead to, to this event or the previous event, but kind of saying like, man – as a media member, I'm not sure I want to work one of these because it looks like it's, it kind of sucks. And then John Cavanaugh, Conor McGregor's longtime trainer, being like, oh, hey, boy. fighters, look at this. Look at these guys. Like, remember this when they're chasing you down for interviews and everything and they don't give a shit about you now when you're lower down, which that in itself is kind of a weird because it's, it's kind of like being like, oh, these media people only care to talk to you when they think you're somebody who their readers would want to hear or want to see somebody talk to like, why don't Funny. they care? Why don't Funny they care? About, why don't they care about you when their readers don't care about you? Well, like, I mean, that's kind of how that cycle works, but then it prompted this conversation where some people were being like, there's no such thing as a bad USC card. They're all good. All the ones uh, they're repeating, like the Dana White talking points, all the ones that don't look good on paper end up being the most exciting ones. And you're like, okay, sometimes that's true. Sometimes they end up being entirely forgettable. Sometimes, you end up sitting through a whole bunch of ads and filler and all that stuff, just trying to get to the good stuff at the very end. It's interesting to me. And we're, we've seen a lot of it during 2020, just because it's been a difficult year for the UFC to keep going. And you got to give the UFC credit for managing to just, they, they put themselves on a track and they are not going to get off that track no matter what. And I'm sure there's a lot of fighters who are grateful for that and the opportunity to fight. We have seen a whole lot of people get, get the COVID as a result of how we're doing some of this stuff, but fine. Uh, we haven't seen anybody or had heard about anybody having any really, really bad outcomes. So maybe that's, that's a uh, silver lining there, but you do see some of these fight cards because you don't have the entire roster available for all the events, just because of travel restrictions, things like that. People getting COVID people getting the regular spate of MMA injuries and staff infections and all the other bullshit that we already had to deal with. That already was a problem for keeping cards together. And then you add all this stuff on top of it. And so you do see a lot of these fight cards where by the time you get to fight night, you're looking at it and you're going, this could be a like a reasonable lineup for a regional MMA event somewhere. Yeah. Like, And just putting the initials UFC in front of it doesn't change that any. Now, and that's fine for some people. Some people, as we've talked about, will watch any two motherfuckers fight in a cage at any time of day from anywhere in the world. Wednesday afternoon, some guys in uh, Chechnya are going to beat each other up uh, and they've got identical beards and you never heard of either one of them before. Some people are still going to be super into that and other people are not. But it's it's a weird thing to me when people are like, well, hey, as soon as you put these guys in the UFC, then it becomes a must-see event. When if those same two guys would have fought in like LFA or something, 
or Bellator or Be- or Bellator in a Bellator post limb on Thursday night in Uncasville, you wouldn't have cared. Like, yeah. especially since, like you said, UFC is going to make those dates, man. They they put the they create the schedule and the calendar before they have the fight cards to fill it, and they're going to put some people in the cage and have them fight on that day, regardless of whether they have the good people available or not. And if they have to go sign these two guys who were going to fight in a regional organization and put together essentially a regional fight to keep the the wheels move and that's what they're going to do. But it's weird how some people, as soon as they see UFC, they assume like it has to mean more now than it did in some other organization. Yeah, man. If there are still people out there in 2020 saying that they will just watch whatever and thank you, UFC, what else can we pay for? I will just go ahead and reiterate my earlier statement that the UFC honestly does not deserve those people. That those people are the true heroes, and I'm not even yes. trying to be a I'm not even trying to be a smartass. I know, like I, I know what you mean. Believe it. Like the UFC literally does not deserve those people, and that, is not like, particularly grateful for them that we can see. Right. Next question this week comes to us from Palmer Joss, who writes, "Well, it finally happened. MMA has finally disgusted my wife to the point she'll no longer sit in the living room with me while I watch the events." She's seen knockouts that left fighters unconscious and drooling on the ground. She's watched a fighter trying to do a post-fight interview with a broken jaw, flapping about like a cartoon muffler. And she's seen a heart and heard groin shots so sickening that they left a poor fool dry heaving on the canvas. But then she saw Ram Ramiz Brahma. Bra, I'm nailing this one. Yeah. Ramiz Bram, Bram, How do you say this last name, folks? Brahmija Brahimaj Brahimaj. Ram Rami's Brahamaj split and nearly severed ear hanging from his bloody scalp on Saturday. And she finally had her no moss moment. And honestly, I had no answer for her. What am I supposed <laughs> to say? Don't worry. His other one still is in relatively decent shape. Anyway, why do the cauliflower ear catastrophes just feel so much more gruesome? This one was gross Yeah, with the elbow strike kind of over the top, kind of like a chopping elbow strike that resulted in, uh, essentially an exploded ear, a torn ear, an ear almost torn off the body there. Uh, Max Griffin wins this one by TKO, Dr. Stoppage. This is one of the grosser ones we've seen in a while. Yeah, we do, first of all, appreciate hearing from Palmer Joss, the character in the 1997 film Contact, uh, played by Matthew McConaughey, serves kind of as the love interest for Jodie Foster in that movie. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> the different, different movie, but yeah, same, kind of the same. I I also think, I mean, the ear ones, like, how is that not going to be gross? Because the grossest thing about this one, honestly, was after the damage had been done and then any sort of movement to his body, you could see that, see that ear jiggle. Yeah. You know, he get hit and look like, like you could see it just like jiggling and moving in just a way where your brain goes, no, ears don't do that. Yeah. Ear, that's not what an ear is like. And even though for fighters, you know, I talked to Leslie Smith about this time when an almost identical thing happened to her and they'll tell you it's more cosmetic than anything. And I'm not really that worried about the ear and the ear comes off. You can stitch it back on, like, let me fight that kind of a thing. And yet visually for the viewer, a lot of people don't know what it's like to be kicked in the leg really, really hard over and over again, or, even to be punched in the head really, really hard. But you see something happen to the ear and you're like, okay, I can imagine my own ears and how much I would very much not like to have them severed, even a little bit. 
don't even want them coming off from my head, even just a little bit. No, yeah, not even partially torn nope. off your head. Yeah. So something about that is just so much worse and like visually the kind of thing you can't possibly ignore. Yeah. You, you, you see that start happening and you can't look at anything else, even though you really wish you could look away. Uh, I want to do this one just to make sure we squeeze it in here from Steve in London, who writes, is Dana White happy? Last week, <laughs> Ariel Helwani tweeted a video from 10 years ago where he interviewed Dana and your new president, Joe Biden, was mentioned. What stood out for me, however, was how different Dana came across. He was happy, positive, engaging, and excited to answer near any question. Compare that to the Dana we see today, and holy shit, what happened? These days, whether he's at a press conference, media scrum, or being interviewed by the likes of gorgeous Brett Okamoto, he appears agitated, tired of all the questions, and like he simply doesn't want to be there anymore. Has Dana lost the love of the fight game? And if so, is there anything that could reignite it? Have you noticed this? I feel like I have noticed this as well, that Dana White, I mean, it seems like he kind of goes through periods like this. Like I remember during the, uh, when it, when we, when we got into the meat of the Fox schedule and it was clear how grueling it was and like he was still traveling around to most all the, the events. I think he might've been suffering from the Meniere's disease at that point as well. And you could just like look at him and he was like pale and like kind of out of shape compared to how he normally is. And he just didn't seem like he was having any fun. It kind of seems like that again right now. And I don't know if you chalk that up to the extra hoops that they have had to jump through and the extra work that it has been on his and his staff uh, to, to continue on the hard charging schedule during the pandemic and do all this kind of different stuff. Uh, or if there have been shifts in the wake of the WME IMG sale uh, and him going from rich to really, really rich that have in some ways also undermined his enthusiasm here. But he does just seem lately like he's not having a ton of fun. Yeah. Uh the press conference he did after, I don't know if it was after USC 254 or after one of the recent events where well, it was the Anderson Silva, wasn't it? Okay. USC, yeah. Anderson Silva and, and Uriah Hall, where he just seemed just mad. Just, and like at the end of his rope. Yeah. And worn out. And like, he just wanted to get out of there. And the, the question, has he lost his love of the fight game and what could reignite? I mean, love of something must be keeping him there. Right. Because he doesn't need the money. It's not like Dana White could just quit at any point if it got to be too much and he'd still have a whole bunch of goddamn money. It seemed maybe just just love of power and being in charge and that kind of stuff. Well, and he wouldn't know what else to do with himself, man. Can you imagine yeah. Dana White just going home? <laughs> yes. Can you imagine how much he would hate that and probably how much every other person at his house would hate having him there all yeah. the time? Yeah. He literally doesn't know what else to do with himself than, than do this all literally 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But I saw this video that Stephen London mentions where he's talking about meeting Joe Biden, and it is a brighter-eyed and bushier-tailed version of Dana White. The same could be said of a lot of us, That's in true. fairness, 10 years yeah. ago. Uh, but it does seem, especially lately, like it's a little – and honestly, I think a lot of it is just that it's probably been a really tough year to be uh, – for one thing, whether we think he handled the pandemic stuff right or not, and I think we have pointed out in the past, a lot of stuff it could have done better, especially in terms of just like communication and messaging early on when Dana White seemed to go out of his way to be a secretive 
megalomaniac fight promoter who wasn't going to tell you anything he was doing about how he was going to deal with this. Right. He literally said it was none of our business. Yes. Uh, And, but I think keeping the train on the tracks maybe has taken its toll as we get later in the year, like just trying to keep everything on schedule, trying going back and forth between Abu Dhabi and these shows at the apex and Las Vegas, trying to keep all these fight cards together. Uh, I don't know. I, I could see how maybe, as all many of us are probably feeling towards the end of 2020, it's been a hell of a year and maybe one that aged Dana White a little bit. And maybe that's what we're seeing is some of the effects of that. I am still primarily of the mind that you will pry the UFC from Dana White's cold, dead fingers when he is no longer alive and could not put up any fight to stop you. But these days you start hearing about, you know, the the conversation around Zufa boxing has been rekindled slightly. Is there any part of you that wonders like, man, if he could really get that off the ground, even though it would be an entirely different promotional effort controlled and governed by entirely different laws than what they do in the UFC, could you ever see Dana White saying, you know what, I did, I did the UFC, I, I took over the MMA universe, basically shaped it in my own damn image. And now I'm going to go try to do the same for boxing, which was my first love anyway, and the place that I originally came from. Could you ever in your wildest dreams imagine, even if it's not Zufa boxing, but something else coming along to take the place of the UFC in Dana White's life? It's still really hard for me to imagine Zufa boxing getting to be that big a deal just because of the differences in how those two sports and how those two worlds work. Like you, a lot of the stuff that the UFC has gotten rich by doing, you just can't do in boxing. And so I don't know. It's hard for me to completely buy in to the, like the suspension of disbelief that I need to imagine that being taking up so much of his time. But I don't know, maybe if, on one hand, you could say Dana White gets involved in boxing, something he's always kind of wanted to do, and maybe that'll re-inject a little bit of the love of the fight game back into him. On the other hand, if you're feeling stretched thin and worn out from trying to keep the UFC and the, the schedule going during 2020, do you think adding another responsibility on top of that is necessarily the thing that makes you feel better? I don't know. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the spanking new website, comainevent.com. Click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. We put up a whole new damn website, but we made sure to keep the email the podcast link in exactly the same place so that you guys wouldn't get confused. We know how much you love to click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen. So Is that the one that says that. email the podcast? That That's like? the one. That's okay. the very one. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with five questions about the light heavyweight division. Ben Glover Tashira went out there on Saturday night and for the most part, aside from a couple of nervous moments, wore Tiago Santos around the octagon like a hat en route to a third round rear naked choke submission, which he almost had why he did have at the end of the second round. Tiago Santos saved by the bell in that one. 
a minute and 49 seconds into the third, Glover Tashira does the thing again. This time secures the tap out. We got five questions about the light heavyweight division for the second half of the show this week. Question number one, Ben, in the wake of this win over Tiago Santos, do we live in a terrifying world where in the absence of John Jones, Glover Tashira may be the best light heavyweight in the UFC. Your thoughts? Wow. Wow. That's a heavy one to think about. 41-year-old Glover Teixeira. You know, Glover Teixeira and I are almost the exact same age. We're like, there's like three days difference. I think I'm three days older than he is. So uh, I don't feel like I'm in a position to go win any big money title fights. Kind of impressed that he is. Especially Glover because Tashira, a winner of five straight now, most recently Tiago Santos, as we said, and Anthony Smith. Get this though, folks, before you finish your your, your thought there. Uh Glover Tashira's previous losses, arguably all to dudes no longer in the UFC light heavyweight division. Corey Anderson, Alexander Gustafson, Anthony Johnson, Phil Davis, and the champ, John Jones. Okay. Those guys, none of them guys are even around anymore with the possible exception, exception of Lusty Gusty. Yeah, I, I mean, I was surprised by the outcome of this fight. I'll say that right off the bat. I thought yeah. Tiago Santos is going to win this thing. And when Glover went in there and made clear that his plan is going to be, I'm not going to stand here with this dude and let him just tee off with nothing but power shots the way he likes to do. I'm going to take him down and remind everybody that, oh, yeah, I'm a pretty good grappler. And even though you, maybe you don't see it all that much. And it was really something when, like, after two rounds of that, when Tiago Santos's corner is telling him, like, look, we don't care how you do it, man, but you got to stop getting taken down. Yeah. And then he goes out there. He drops Glover with a hook to, at the, early in the, the third round. And I'm sure everybody in hindsight – Everybody's like, why did you jump on him there and get get sucked back into a ground match when clearly he's a better grappler than you are? And what happens is you ended up getting reversed. Uh, you go from the top to the bottom. And when that happened and when Glover started hitting him from the top and then looking for that choke, you could kind of see in Tiago Santos's facial expressions and body language that he was kind of going, you know what? I had one comeback in me, but I don't think I have two. Yeah. Like, that was, and I think that that's probably why he made that decision he made to to follow him to the mat and try to finish it there was because the guy kind of wore you out in the first two rounds. When you do see an opportunity where I've got him hurt and maybe I can finish it, like you could argue, hey, you should have stepped back and tell Glover to get up and let's see if we can do that again. But also, if you let him get up, maybe he takes you down again. And so you might feel after being a little bit, uh, worn out on the mat in those first two rounds, you might feel like, I want to get this over with. I want to get out of here. And seeing that possibility convinces you to jump down there and take that chance. And then it goes wrong for him. But I mean, Glover's that kind of guy at this point in his career where you look at him physically, what he's capable of. And like the, like athletically, what we think he's capable of. He's not blowing your hair back with any one thing that he does, but he is a solid all around fighter. And just calm as all hell under fire. Yeah. Last time he lost a fight, July 22nd of 2018. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Glover Tashira has transformed himself into a different guy because it doesn't look that way. But I think you got to give the dude props for being 41 years old 
and clearly staying on the grind, like in all aspects of the game, in the training room, in the actual fights, uh, probably in his lifestyle. It would. I don't know that Glover Tashir could be out here doing the things that he's doing right now, and I don't know that any of us expected that he would be out here doing the things that he's doing right now at 41 years old if he wasn't handling his business in a 24-hour-a-day lifestyle choice kind of way. And so I think you got to give it up for him for doing that and and being out here proving people wrong and doing things that we don't expect him to do and uh, putting himself in a potential position to fight for a title when you think the last time he fought John Jones for the championship was almost what seven years ago at this Jesus. point. So Raver's so young, Chad. Who knows what might happen? You give Glover Tashira a second go around, a second shot at the championship. We're gonna go to question two here from Eric Death of Stalin. Okay. So there you go with that name. Right. Uh let me put forth an argument that may be counterintuitive for the spite fight sports world. Power vacuums. When great champs leave or lose, the sport gets better. Examples, you ask? I'll gladly provide. When GSP absconded with the middleweight belt, what did we get? Bobby Nux and Yoel, best of two, and Izzy Nux. When Chuck lost his chin, what did we get? Three years of fun-ass round-robin where everyone got a turn with the belt before Jones locked that shit down. When Habib unceremoniously retired, what did we get? A lightweight title picture that is that is an embarrassment of goddamn riches. When GSP retired with the welterweight strap, what did we get? Robert Glenn Lawler as my favorite champ ever. His three-fight run with Hendricks, McDonald, and Condit were hands down the best time to be a fan. We enjoyed a period of just having an undeservingly good time in MMA, all because of a vacuum. So, conclusion slash question. Should light heavyweight be any different? Jonesless 205 has already produced Yanni Blackjacks versus Reyes, and assuming you just mentally forget Jones exists, the matchups are all just plain fun. Blackjack versus Glover, yes, please, I'll have that. That'll be a good time. Blackjack versus the winner of Tiago and Anthony Smith, yes, please again, put that on my tab. A returning Gustafson to his rightful division, fuck yes. Pre order now, shut up and take my money. Ben, are you buying this? That, uh, that divisions get better? when the uh, the dominant champion takes his leave because the sheer finances of the situation would tell you the opposite. Yeah, well, it depends what you mean by better because I do agree that there's something to when in the aftermath of a really dominant champ holding down a division, we suddenly see a lot more movement and a lot more life. People who it seemed like their paths to a title were blocked off and that conversation was just over for good, now – they can revitalize that a little bit. Glover's a good example of that because we already saw him against John Jones. It wasn't like it was a competitive fight. He could have won 10 in a row and people weren't going to be sitting there going, I need to see Jones to share a two. It just wasn't going to happen. But then when Jones leaves a whole lot of people who had losses to Jones and who just seemed like whatever we thought they could do in the division, they'd already done. Now they all can get back in that conversation. And especially when you get somebody like Jan Blachowicz who wins the title in an upset over Dominic Reyes. And I, we talked about before, you you got a lot of people who it seemed like we're looking at him going, okay, let's see who can get there first and take that title off him. It's suddenly there's a much more vulnerable champ than has been there for about a decade. So yeah, like in that sense, I agree to an extent. I think 
at some points you get to a point where the belt is getting passed around too much and it's hard for people to follow. And then they start to long for like stability in the division, somebody to come along, plant their ass on the throne and stay there for a little while. But I do think in the immediate aftermath of a dominant champ leaving and that, that excitement can be fun. And yet, as you alluded to, maybe not super profitable for the promoters because while we're all sitting here talking about the idea of uh, Glover Teixeira stepping in there and fighting Jan Blachowicz, testing that legendary Polish power up next. And people are, in a way, kind of, it seems surprising themselves by going, you know what? Actually, yeah, I would be a little bit into that, especially after seeing Glover win this fight against Thiago Santos. He seems like a nice guy. You gonna, you know, you want to see the old guy get a, another chance before his time is up. Sure, like let go ahead and let's do it. And yet, you know, the UFC totaling up receipts in their heads are not going well. Sure, uh, Blahovich versus Teixeira that'll do great pay per view numbers just as much as Israel Adesanya moving up in weight would right. do. Like right. those are very different fights from a promotional standpoint. Yeah. Eric provides some really good examples here of, uh, people using chaos as a ladder and, uh, the situation in these various divisions is legitimately becoming more fun in surprising ways after the dominant champion, uh, is no longer there. But I would also point that uh, to, to the light heavyweight example that he offers up in the mid two thousands as a good indicator of, of, you know, what situational differences we're talking about here, because, I remember the glory days of uh, Chuck Liddell, Randy Couture trilogy and Vitor Belfort and Tito Ortiz being in the mix, giving way to Quentin Jackson, Forrest Griffin, Rashad Evans, Lyoto Machida and Shogun Hua passing the belt around like a hot potato where only two of those guys uh, successfully defended the belt even once the rest of them, you know, had very short reigns with the title. And the fact that John Jones comes along in 2011 ish, and puts the belt on lockdown, I think was just as welcome a change at that time. So I think it depends, you know, where you're at, what division you're in, the, the, the quality of the people all circling the title and what kind of matchups they make. And I think light heavyweight could be a little bit fun right now. Uh, if you, if you put Yanni Blackjacks and, uh, Glover Tashira and Anthony Smith and maybe uh, Alexander Gustafson all in a crown royal bag and shake them up and, and dump them out like that. That could be a fun time. But for how long and at what cost, I guess, to the uh, to the bottom line of that division. So I'm interested to see what happens. But at the same time, uh, I'm not going to totally sell the idea of uh, of a dominant champion being being somehow lesser. I think that that in general, most people, whether they admit it or not, kind of like that, that uh, state of affairs. Question number three from Gold Mouth Dog. All right. Nice. Did the UFC get a little ahead of itself announcing the Adesanya Blokovic's fight given the outcome of Saturday's main event? Shouldn't they just go ahead and give Glover the next shot versus Jan, considering it's only a formality, the winner will get starched by Israel, thus keeping Jones versus Izzy still on track? Now, you mentioned a few minutes ago, Ben, probably the best point to make here, and that is that the UFC seems like it is in a mode right now to make the money up front, (laughs) like to make as much money as it can right now and uh, put that in the bank. So I think that if you think about it from just like a, a, uh, a monetary, a financial situation, Israel Adesanya versus Jan Blahovich is probably still the fight to make. 
but I don't think it, it's going to shock anybody to say that uh, Glover Tashira came along this past weekend and made things seem uh, more interesting and more fun than they have any right to be. I don't think anybody yeah. expected we would be here on Monday having this conversation about Glover Tashira and seriously entertaining the idea of of a fun ass time between Yanni Blackjacks and, and Glover. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the answer to the question of did the UFC get ahead of itself announcing that Adesanya Blahovich fight? Yes, because not only did it undercut the stakes of this fight on Saturday between Teixeira and, and Diego Santos, because before you announced the next fight in the division, we would have thought that this was probably de- determined the number one contender. And you just come out like, at a press conference beforehand, like a week before the fight and say, basically, no, it doesn't. We've already made up our minds about this. And so these guys are just fighting kind of to hang around. And so Teixeira comes out, surprises a lot of people, wins the fight and then makes a pretty solid case. And afterwards, even Dana White is saying, you know, he's not wrong. He makes some good points about it. Like maybe we'll consider that. And, it does make you wonder, wait, what kind of thought process went into this in the first place? Because you had Dana White saying, well, Robert Whitaker doesn't want to fight Israel Adesanya again. And so that's why we're thinking about doing this thing where Adesanya moves up and wait. And you have your guy Bobby Knuckles saying, I do want to fight him. And the UFC never even reached out to me to ask me if I wanted to fight him. And so it does seem like a little bit surprising that at this level, when we're trying to book light heavyweight title fights, potentially champion versus champion bouts, uh, we're doing it with this level of informality, basically, or this lack of thought uh, about the future. Because, yeah, you come out of this one, and I think, as I said before, I think some of us were kind of surprised at our own reactions to seeing Glover Teixeira win this fight make his case on the mic in that kind of like, come on, man, I'm old and I'm, but I'm still good and give me a chance. And I think a lot of us, at least, you know, inside the hardcore MMA fan bubble, we're going, you know what? Yeah, actually, now that I heard him lay it out and after seeing him win this fight, I agree with the guy. Yeah. And I think it probably makes a lot of us feel kind of bad for Glover Tashira, right? Because like I said before, in order for him to be as competitive as he is right now, at the age that he is, and with as much wear and tear on the body as he has sustained over a long MMA career, you know that he is dedicating his entire life to being as good as he is in the cage, which is better than any of us, I think, expected him to be at this age, having won five straight now. Uh, and it sucks, frankly, from a Glover Tashira standpoint, if any of us are out there with Glover Tashira fight kits stashed away in our closets, uh, it sucks to think that the UFC would go ahead and do Israel Adesanya versus Jan Blachowicz, which is a fun fight in its own right. And I think one we will all watch and not one that we will complain about on a situational basis. But at the same time, you know, if, if Israel Adesanya wins that, they're not going to turn around and be like, okay, Israel Adesanya versus Glover Tashira. Why not? The thing that they're going to do is try to jump on an Israel Adesanya, John Jones fight. And if you're Glover Tashira, and as you said, you are old, you can't sit around all day waiting for these guys to to figure this shit out, man. Having to fight two, maybe three more times before finally your your number comes up, like that's just a that's just a bad beat for Glover, man. Just a bad a bad turn of events that that frankly he doesn't deserve. I feel like he seems like the kind of dude who deserves better. Yeah. Number four, question number four this week: Should Bellator be able to make a a bigger deal 
right now out of having a competitive light heavyweight division if this is what the UFC is reduced to. Now, we saw Corey Anderson go over and make his Bellator debut last Thursday. We talked about it on the uh, Friday Power Hour over there on the Patreon page. But basically, speaking of wearing guys around the, the cage like a hat, Corey Anderson does Corey Anderson stuff to Melvin Manhoff for just over a round and a couple of minutes, gets the TKO victory there. And as I said at the time, Bellator gets what it paid for. You got a, a very Corey Anderson type display against Melvin Manhoff. He looked great. I don't know that it's the kind of fight that anyone's going to, uh, you know, uh, change the channel or, or mark on their calendar to make sure that they watch. But if, if Glover Tashira is your number one contender and Corey Anderson seems set to fight Vadim Nemkov in Bellator for the light heavyweight title, aren't we sort of talking about comparable products and maybe the idea that if John Jones is truly gone and maybe prior to the arrival of Israel Adesanya, we'll have to see how good he even looks at 205, that maybe Vadim Nemkov is the number one 205 pound fighter in the world. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an argument Bellator could and probably should be trying to make. I guess the counter argument would be maybe Bellator has one or two guys who could be in that conversation right now. The UFC has, you know, I won't quite say that the the entire top 10 at light heavyweight feels super relevant at all times, but has a little bit of a deeper bench at light heavyweight uh, than Bellator does. But you're right that once you look at the actual guys that you have at the top of each division and circling around the top of the division, you, it does seem like a much more comparable situation than you see in a lot of other weight classes when you start comparing UFC and Bellator. Is the biggest issue for Bellator right now still that like it, people need to be able to find it? That, and people night. need to be notified and given enough of a reason to care, given enough of a, of a hook to get them to show up on whatever night you're on and whatever network and, and motivate them to find out and then carve out a space for it in their life. Cause I'll say right now, even while I like the Thursday night thing that Bellator is doing, but it still catches me by surprise. Sometimes you're still just not used to it for, cause for the longest time it was Bellator was a, a Friday night thing and you just get used to there being a Bellator almost every Friday night. And so when you're changing nights, you're changing platforms, all that stuff. It just takes some getting used to. You got to reprogram yourself a little bit as a fight fan. I also think you see a few times in a few different divisions where Bellator can put together one really good fight and uh, legitimate contenders, guys who are, who are relevant in the division, no matter where you put them, whether organization they're in, they'd be relevant and you can get together one good fight. But then the problem is, what about after that? Do you have enough people lined up who can keep coming and, and keep challenging for the title so that the the picture there remains competitive going forward? And that's the challenge for Bellator. Is it weird to think that perhaps I have in some ways become so spoiled by the ESPN Plus deal where I can watch the UFC on my phone, on my computer, like while I'm making dinner, that... I kind of feel like Bellator needs a streaming thing that's not DAZN. Like DAZN obviously was like kind of a disaster in terms of messaging. You know, I think they got some money out of it financially, but I just at the same time still felt like nobody knew where to find it. And now at this point, like I don't know that I want to go all the way up to the top tier satellite package or whatever I need to get to have CBS sports on my television. 
Like, I want CBS Sports to put that shit on the internet, man. Like, let me watch Corey Anderson versus Melvin Manhoff on YouTube or something. Like, and they're usually pretty good about putting those fights up after they happen. But like, I feel like Bellator needs to be real competitive to like, to like give people who would ordinarily watch the UFC a real opportunity to to see your product. Like, I feel like you need to have more than the prelims streaming online. Yeah. Well, that's, is that crazy that I think that it's not crazy that you think that, but also, I mean, it depends what your viewing setup is like, because if you get like the package through Hulu where you get the live sports package, then it is essentially streaming on the CBS sports network. So Maybe I'm. Maybe I just need a, a higher level of technological wizardry. That's that, all you're telling me. That could be the answer to a lot of your woes. Okay. You know? I mean, you're gonna have to stick around after this and teach nope. me your ways. I will teach not me the ways that. of the internet. Question number five this week, Ben. What are the odds that John Jones is gone for good from light heavyweight? And if so, what does the future look like for this division? Oh, that's a tough one, man, because doesn't it seem like a lot depends on how things shake out for him at heavyweight? Like yeah, if he goes up there, absolutely. if he fights for the heavyweight title in his first fight, and to me, if you're even thinking about what John Jones should do at heavyweight, the only things that make sense are immediate title shot or one of those crazy just for fun fights like John Jones versus Francis Ngannou. Like something big. He's not going to go up and fight Curtis Blades to prove himself as a contender in the heavyweight division. And if he goes up there and he actually wins it, like say he fights Stipe and he's the heavyweight champ now, and then you got guys like Francis Ngannou lined up afterwards, or you actually have heavyweights coming at John Jones, and especially if he starts to see heavyweight paychecks, then I don't think he comes back. Yeah, I think he probably stays there. But if he goes up there and he loses, or if there's just not enough action for him up at light heavyweight, or especially the scenario we talked about before, if Israel Adesanya did go up to heavyweight, light heavyweight, get a title there, and then start taunting John Jones from his old weight class, which you know he would do, yeah. then Jones takes the bait and comes back down there, I think. But yeah. uh, still a lot to be determined about John Jones's future. See, that's the thing that I was going to mention is that like I feel... Things could be going perfectly swimmingly for John Jones at heavyweight. He, let's say, for the sake of argument, that he goes up there and whips Stipe Miocic like uh, Stefan Bonner in the early days of the John Jones light heavyweight career, and becomes the UFC heavyweight champion. And and is life is good for at the at the Jones house. He can buy a brand new shotgun to chase down intruders with uh, with this heavyweight money that he's getting. He's still, is he going to be able to resist the siren song of light heavyweight if Israel Adesanya is wearing his belt around, pretending to take his dick out and pee all over the cage uh, and, and hump light heavyweight contenders in the middle of the, of the octagon? Because you know Israel Adesanya is going to be like, hey, John, I, I've got my belt and now I've got yours. Is he going to like, ah, it's hard for me to believe that John Jones would just be content to just be like, okay, I'm the heavyweight champ. That's objectively speaking, a bigger deal than the light heavyweight champ. So I'm just going to tune Israel Adesanya out. Motherfucker, John Jones has never tuned out anything in his whole goddamn life. It's the dictionary definition of rabbit ears on that guy. He would be back down at 205 so fast that like our heads would spin trying to trying to do a, a champ versus champ for a third title thing that would be huge probably. Yeah. Then that's, but on the flip side, if it's Jan Blachowicz and his Polish power, 
taking on guys like Glover Teixeira and stuff, and then talking about how he thinks he's the greatest light heavyweight in the world. Maybe a little easier for John Jones to ignore that, especially if he does get some action going at heavyweight and has bigger fights lined up there. Right. But uh, like that would be because we would all view Israel Adesanya as having a potential realistic claim. Like all, all due respect to Yanni Blackjacks and the kid Glover, uh, either one of those guys is your 205 pound champion. And they start talking about how they're the best 205 pound fighter in the world. We would all be like, yeah, guys, no, like we, with Glover, we've already seen what happens against John Jones and with uh, Jan Blahovich, we have a pretty good idea in our mind's eye what would happen if John Jones came back down. With Israel Adesanya, we would have questions. I, yeah. I mean, I don't know that he would be able to beat John Jones at 205 pounds, but it's an interesting idea. And that alone, I think, is the thing that John Jones would could be motivated by. If it was Glover or Blackjacks, he would know that they were bullshitting. If it was Israel Adesanya, he might start to... to get wind of the fact that that some of us were looking, were raising our eyebrows, that some of us were looking askance at the 205-pound division, wondering maybe Israel Adesanya does have a, a fair point there. Meanwhile, Vadim Nemkov going to be over there trying to find some way to get in that conversation. John Jones, Vadim you are Nemkov bullshit. Or whoever else has the title. That's who Corey Anderson <laughs> wants to in his second Bellator fight. In any case, that's going to do it. Five questions about the light heavyweight division Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thanks, everybody, for writing in your questions. We do appreciate it. Of course, we will be back on Wednesday over on the Patreon page for the live chat, Thursday for our movie club podcast about First Blood, and then Friday for the co-main event podcast, Patreon Power Hour, featuring the co-main event podcast, Patreon Power Hour, Power Rankings. It's almost every day over there at this point on the Patreon. So if you want to get down with us there, we invite you to join the team, patreon.com slash co-main event. People seem to enjoy themselves. That's all I'm saying. As for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. So you know if it does become every day over there, that's when we're going to start to get that hacker Dana White look. <laughs> We've already got that look. The light both, drained from our eyes. We're both out here doing this show and just haggard. Yeah. And without the weapons room to show for it either. That's true. Yeah. No basketball courts in here. Neither of us have bought our neighbors' homes just to bulldoze them. So, yeah, we got some catching up to do. There's time. There's time.